0: Welcome to this week's message from Pastor Jeff Barker of Story Point Church, located in the heart of Gulf Breeze, Florida. And now, here's Pastor Jeff Spudybarger for this week's message from Story Point Church. We turn to Hebrews chapter 12. That's where we're going to camp out for the majority of the day today is Hebrews chapter 12. So we've laid this foundation for the last couple of weeks that that God is holy. The Trinity is holy. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, God the Trinity is holy. And how that is the foundation for our lifestyle or should be as Christ followers. Everything we do as a Christ follower should be based partially on the fact that God is holy and there's command to us to be holy as well. And we looked last week at the idea of sanctification, and we used an illustration, an example. And I don't know if this is biblically accurate. I think it's really weighs more heavily on the God side than our side. But I corresponded it to being, or I illustrated it to being 50 50. 50% God, 50% my responsibility to walk in holiness and purity. He's given us commands, but the sanctification process is as much on God, if not more so on God, than it is on us. So He commands us to be holy, but He also tells us, you are going to be holy because I've ordained it, I've spoken it. It's part of the work that I do in you and through you. And so we started jumping last week into the application aspect of holiness and how important that is. It's no longer pie in the sky. It's not this idea that God's holy and then everything else we do just pales in comparison. It falls short. No, there is a life application in how we start walking that out every single moment of every single day. And I did my best to sum up all of Hebrews in a few sentences. And this is basically how I summed up all of Hebrews to set up the foundation for Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 1 through 10 is the authenticity of who Jesus is. It's all about Jesus. Hebrews 11 reminds us of all the saints that have gone before us. Specifically the ones in the Old Testament, few of them in the New Testament area. But what we're really focused on is all the saints, anyone who has gone before us, singing around the throne in this moment, have set an example for holiness and faithfulness that we are called to live out every single moment of every single day. And then we jumped in to Hebrews chapter 12 where it begins and talks about The saints that have gone before us. This great cloud of witness. And then it reminds us that Jesus Himself, the author and the perfecter of our faith, He originated it and He makes it perfect in each of us. So let that be the foundation that we look at verse 4 through 11. Let's read this together and then we'll kind of look at it verse by verse and talk through it a little bit. Hebrews 12 verse 4. In your struggle against sin... You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And you have forgotten the word of encouragement that addresses you as sons, or addresses you as a father would address his children. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when He rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines those He loves, and He punishes everyone He accepts as sons. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? If you are not disciplined, and everyone goes through discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true children of God, not true sons. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of our spirit and live? Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best. But God disciplines for us for our good that we may share in His holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. So let's take a moment and pause and think about discipline for a moment. Because in our culture, in our world, we correlate equally discipline and punishment. And even in the Scripture, we just read the word punish is used. We're going to substitute that word uh, in a little while with an Aramaic word that that means the same thing, just to kind of give a different perspective. But what I want us to focus on is discipline does not always equate to punishment, although our perspective of reading this Scripture is punishment-based. And it should not be so. But you see, we wear lenses as we study Scripture and as we read Scripture. The lenses of the way that I was raised, the lens of our culture, so our perspective, our lens, our understanding as we read this Scripture sometimes gives us a misunderstanding of the point of view that's being written here. And so I want us, as we read this Scripture, as we study this Scripture, to read it from the idea of a God that loves us, as a daddy that loves us, a father that loves us, and disciplines us as children. Now, for those of us in this room who are parents or have been parents, or are in a, a seat of authority as a parent, you understand what I said just a moment ago, that all discipline does not, under, does not correlate equally to punishment. However, if you were to take my two children that are sitting here, the other two are upstairs, but these two that are sitting here and ask them if discipline equals punishment, most likely they're going to say yes, right? Because as a child, as you're disciplined, you equate it to punishment. But punishment really is not the same as dis- discipline always. Punishment, we think about the wrath, we think about the belt, we think about the switch, we think about the spanking, things of that nature. But is not punishment also time out? Children, do not enjoy time out. My three-year-old today, Anna Faith turned three years old today, her, as I stick her nose in the corner is punishment, she's bawling her eyes out. She is screaming and crying, no mo'cona, no mo'cona. And I said, yes, ma'am, your nose is in the corner because you bit a bad girl, you made a bad choice. This is what happened, no mo'cona, no mo'cona. Yes, ma'am. So in that moment, although she wants no mo'cona, I understand that the discipline that she's receiving, although it is not punishment the way that I view punishment, as a spanking or or something that, that inflicts physical pain, it's still a form of discipline. I think God does the same thing to us sometimes. I think sometimes when I lose my temper or I have my own little pity party, God puts me in the corner sometimes and says, corner time for you, and I cry out and say, I don't want the Kona no more. No more Kona, God! No more Kona! And I cry out to God that way and He in His gentleness and in His love, says you need the corner for a little while. You need some time out time so that you can compose yourself, so that you can think, so that you can reflect on the bad choices that you just made. Now, I'm also not saying that all discipline is either the corner or either it's the belt. I'm not saying that, but I want us to understand that when we view this term in Scripture, when we talk about discipline, we're not only talking about punishment, but we're also talking about the different ways that God disciplines us based on where we're at in our lives. Now this section opens up verse 4 within your struggle against sin. Let's pause there for just a moment and I want to ask some tough questions, some pointed questions. I want this time right now to be a conversation Eyeball to eyeball and kneecap to kneecap and ask some tough questions. Number one, do you struggle against sin? Do you struggle against sin? Let's focus on that for just a moment because... The author is not insinuating that you're living a lifestyle of sin, that I'm, I'm caught up in an addiction, and because of that addiction, I'm living day in and day out, moment by moment, in this addiction, and I'm living a sinful lifestyle. That's not what we're talking about here. Remember who the book is being written to. Remember the foundation of the first 11 Chapters plus the first three verses of chapter 12, and you're going to see here He's not talking to somebody who is actively living in defiant, disobedient sin. He's talking to you and He's talking to me who are struggling against the sinful nature of this world. I hope that you are struggling against the sinful nature of this world and not compromising and giving in to the sinful nature of this world because if you give in and you fall into a destructive lifestyle of living like the world not being in the world but of not being of the world but being in the world as the scripture says if we're not following in that category then we're living in outright defiance and disobedience against God do you struggle against a sinful nature, a sinful world? And I hope the answer is yes. It's a battle. It's a struggle. It's something I have to fight against every single day. I live in a house with a wife and four kids. I have a tendency to lose my temper. And I have to, in that moment, choose to take that captive or I've I've lost the battle against that sinful nature. You see what I'm saying here? As Christ followers our hearts and our desires should be to live a holy perfect sinless life. But it's a battle. And when I lose that moment of battle in my own heart and life, I confess it is sin, I give it to God and I try at that moment on to walk in holiness and purity again. It is a struggle. Do you battle a sinful nature? Are you at war with the sinful nature? That is constantly bombarding you through media, through entertainment, through friends, through family, through work, through life. In your struggle against sin, he says, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Let me ask a few more questions. Pointed questions at this point because no one here that I'm aware of has been martyred for their faith or has bled because of their struggle against sin. Let me ask you a few questions here. Why do we wait until we hit rock bottom to admit things need to change? Why? That's not biblical. There's not a biblical foundation that we wait until we hit rock bottom and then I'm laying on my back, I can't move, and my only direction's up and now I can focus on God. Why do we choose? It's a choice that we make. Every single one of us, if, we, if this affects us, if this is speaking to us directly, why do we wait till we hit rock bottom to decide I need to change, things need to change in my heart, in my life, in my family's life, in my work life, in my social life, whatever that happens to be. Why do we wait that long? If I'm truly cleansed, if I'm truly seeking to be cleansed, seeking holiness, seeking purity, as I'm asking these hard questions and the Holy Spirit of God revealing them to me, I should never hit rock bottom as a Christ follower, ever. And yet we see that as an epidemic inside of our very churches. that because of our lack of pursuit of holiness, our lack of pursuit of being intentional in our relationship with God, We see brokenness all throughout our congregation. In our marriages, in our addictions, in our lives, everywhere. Here's another tough eyeball-to-eyeball, kneecap-to-kneecap question. Why can everyone else see the problem, but we seem to be blind to it? Why is it that every single person, everybody else sees the issues in my life, but I, I don't acknowledge them? I don't see them. It's like I'm walking around with a big bullseye, a big red shirt on, in a big white room of of white shirts everywhere. I'm the only one that sticks out, but I can't acknowledge that I'm any different. How absurd that is. We pretend like we're colorblind and we don't see it. Is that because of the lack of the pursuit of holiness? Is that because of my lack of asking God to cleanse me, to purify me, to make me holy, to be in tune with Him, to be like Him, to have more of His Spirit dwelling within me? See, these aren't easy questions. This is a hard section this really is. I have one more candid question to ask you. Why are we satisfied with mediocrity, indifference, and an apathetic lifestyle? Well, we know that we are as a culture, but why does that affect us as Christ followers? Why are we as Christ followers setting an example for the next generation of mediocrity? It's okay. It's okay, it's just the way life is. I'm indifferent. Well, you know, it doesn't really matter. How have we, as Christ followers, allowed the apathetic spirit to influence us? How has it become so rampant in our churches? Why do we live that type of lifestyle? Of indifference, the I don't care attitude. Wow! That's hard. Why? Because we're called to battle against sin. We're called to stand and make a difference. We're we're called to look different than the rest of the world. To be in the world, but not of the world. Yet we look more like we're in the world. And look like the world. It's, It's scary. And so, of course there's a need for discipline. If I claim Christ as my Lord and Savior, and I pursue Him with holiness and purity, yet I'm living a mediocre life, a lifestyle of indifference, an apathetic lifestyle, an I-don't-care type lifestyle, of course I need to be disciplined. Of course I need God to shake me and rattle me and roll me. I love what Henry Blackaby says about the way that God communes with us. He says there's four ways that God talks to us. One's through our our Bible study and reading godly material. Another is by our church services and our gatherings. Another is in our prayer life. But if we don't do those things and we don't live life together and we're not focused on those, the only option is that fourth option, which is our circumstances. And I can tell you from my personal experience, and this is my wisdom to those, those out there not to do this, don't wait till you hit rock bottom and have God shake you so hard To shake you back into reality. To shake you to get your attention. He does that because he loves us. But if I'm actively pursuing a lifestyle of holiness. If I'm actively pursuing more of God in my heart and my life. If he's the passion for which I rise in the morning. In the ups and the downs. He's going to be the one that encourages me. Look at verse 5. And you have forgotten the word of encouragement that addresses you as children of the king. Now, I love this word here, encourage. And I wondered as I looked at that... Scripture, how often in other translations that word encourage is actually said? Because if you were to take these next two verses, the rest of five in the verse six, these are your live and share verse of the week, the encouraging words on the inside of your bulletin that you looked at it and said, Wow, discipline, correction. I want to memorize these scriptures. Yes. Can't wait to think about that all day tomorrow. Yes. If that doesn't stir, your, stir you on the inside as it doesn't stir me on the inside, it's because I look at those verses out of the context of what's being written. And if I look at, take those verses and I don't see that just before it, he uses the word encouraging words, what's encouraging about these words? Look at those next few words and you say, that's not encouraging. That's not a feel-good message. That's not a wake me up in the morning and I feel the love embracing warmth of God type of scripture. No, it's the hell's fire and brimstone type of message that it seems to portray. So why on earth would he say that these are encouraging words? So I looked at several other translations and I only found one translation. I only looked up a number of them. But I only found one translation that had it come across as a negative context. Everything else that I found it was a positive point of view pointing toward these next few verses how can it be positive how on earth can these next words be positive you heard me read them a minute ago you've probably already looked out of my head how can this be positive discipline punishment correction how is that positive it's based on the heartbeat of the one that's giving it it's about our understanding of who Abba is Because if I have a point of view, based on my relationship with my earthly father, that is not healthy, unintentionally, that's the way I view my father in heaven. That's what was taught. That's all that I know. We've had that conversation in here before about the Abba struggle. This is an Abba struggle issue right here. This is an Abba struggle type of verse. If I look at these next few words from a negative point of view, if I look at these next few words as not encouraging, as not counsel, as not positive, but I look at them as negative, then I'm viewing the God that sits on the throne as the king, but not my daddy, not my Abba, not my Dada. And if I don't view him that way, then I'm viewing him as the king with the power and the lightning bolt, waiting for me to trip up and fall so that he can get on to me. But that is not the point of view that's being written here. So we have to wrestle with this a little bit. So let me read the rest of 5 and 6 again, just so we're on the same page. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when He rebukes you because the Lord disciplines those He loves and He punishes everyone He accepts as a son. Ugh, that still sounds negative. That still sounds hard. What do I do with that? Let me read that one more time. But I want to read it from a different translation. I want to read it to you from the Passion Translation. Listen to these words. My child, do not underestimate the value of the discipline and training of the Lord God, or get depressed when he has corrected you, for the Lord's training of your life is the evidence of his faithful love, and when he draws you to himself, it proves you are his delightful child. How beautiful that is. Now I heard that from a different lens. I heard that from a daddy who loves me. From a daddy who has my best interest in mind, A daddy who does embrace me with a warm hug in the morning. Yet when I make a mistake, he corrects me. And sometimes it's a harsher correction and sometimes it's a lighter correction based on the need of the correcting in that moment. But I feel the love. I feel the heartbeat. I feel the encouragement that's there. Now, if you're in the middle of struggling with Abba, this hurts and this doesn't resonate with you. It may not resonate with you. And it's hard to grasp and understand. If you're currently, as a young person, living in a, in a hostile environment in your home, this makes no sense to you. It's hard to grasp this. If you've been on your own for 20 years and you've never been able to put behind the things of the past, never been able to forgive dad for the abuse, for the harsh words, for the mean actions that were taken against you, this is still hard to grasp and understand. But somehow in this moment, Holy Spirit of God, fall fresh so that you can feel and hear and understand and sense the presence of God speaking over you these words in love. I'm correcting you because I love you and I want you to be holy like I'm holy. I'm disciplining you because I love you and I want you to be holy as I am holy. I'm correcting you because I love you and I want you to walk in holiness and purity the way that I walk in holiness and purity. I want you to be like me. I want you to look like me. And because of that, we have to tweak some things that are going on in your life. Because of that, we need to radically change some things that may be going on in your heart, in your life. But it's because I love you. I love you so much that I will discipline you. How much love would I show you, says the Father, if I let you do anything you ever wanted and I never stopped you to correct you? But we don't want to hear that. Why? Because our world, our culture has taught us and told us, do whatever you want. Whatever feels good, it's okay. Whatever feeds that need, it's okay. Whatever stimulates the mind, it's okay. Whatever physically attracts you, it's okay. But that's a lie from the evil one deceiving us, drawing us away from God instead of drawing us close to Him. And so we, st- we choose to rebel so many times instead of seeking this holiness and purity. I love what it said right there in verse 5. Or get depressed when He has corrected you. You ever gotten depressed when God corrected you? I have. God, why am I going through this again? I just went through this last week. I thought I learned my lesson. We get depressed because of the correction of God, and we think God doesn't love us, and and we're blaming God for these things that are happening in our heart and our life, and it's for our own good. We just don't want to see it. In the original language, in the Aramaic, this same phrase can be translated as this. Don't let your soul tremble with dread when your loyalty strays from Him. Why? Because it's a battle. And... Whatever is in the center of our circle of life is the most important thing to us. And if God is not in the center of the circle of our life, then our loyalty has strayed to be loyal to something else. Anything other than God the Father, Son, Holy Spirit is idolatry, and he hates idolatry. He can't stand it. It's the number one command that he gave. Focus on God as the center of the circle. But when our loyalty strays, when something else replaces God in the center of our circle of life, He's going to let us know, especially if we're looking in that spiritual mirror day in and day out and asking God, reveal to me what's in you or what's in me that's not of you. Show me, God, what's in me that's not of you. I want to walk in holiness. I want to walk in purity. And I'm struggling right now. I'm hurting. I'm trying to figure this out. And He'll show you. Look what it says in verse 6. Because the Lord disciplines those he loves. Now, two things. That word discipline can also be translated as sanctify. Remember, we talked about sanctification last week, and I mentioned it earlier here just a moment ago. Sanctification. He disciplines or he sanctifies those that he loves. Think about that. Sanctification means to be set apart, it means to be made holy. To be made holy. God loves us. He makes holy those whom He loves, which is us. And so as we pursue after Him, our part of it, He purifies us and makes us holy. His part of it. Part of the sanctification process, part of the sanctifying process, part of the setting apart, part of making us holy is to cleanse us, is to purify us. That is done through a discipline. Purification is not painless, my friends. I can vouch for that. Purification is not painless. We're covered in gunk and muck. We're covered in a shape that is not God-honoring. And when we ask to be purified, we ask to be cleansed, we ask to be made whole, he gets his little chisel in his mallet and starts tapping at us, making us to look exactly what it is that he wants us to look like. Think about that. Does that sound like a pleasant experience? No. But in the end, the result is something beautiful. And that is his heart for each and every one of us. And then it talks about love. Discipline the ones he loved. Now this word for love in the Aramaic refers to a mother's nurturing love. So at the very beginning of this, you have the father's discipline and now you have a mother's love. Do you see how the two correlate? Both in the same statement about God the Father disciplining us, correcting us, We look at that from a father perspective because even in our culture today, the father is typically known as the authority, as the one who corrects, as the one who disciplines. That's not universal truth. We know that to be true. Thank you mamas in the room who discipline your children. We know that that's necessary as well. But in our culture, it's still believed, still taught that a father disciplines and the mother nurtures. Both of these are given as attributes of God right here in the purification process, in that sanctifying process. As we battle against sin, the Father corrects and the the mothering instinct, the mothering love, the nurturing of God the Father also covers us as well. So yes, that same God who corrects us is the same God that whispers over you as you lay your head to sleep at night and tells you how much He loves you. Yes, that same Father who's correcting you in this moment is also the nurturing God who knows every single hair on your head, how many you have, and what color they are, whether they're the real color or they're not the real color anymore. He's the same one that knows that, and He doesn't care. He doesn't care if you've died Him. He doesn't care. He doesn't care if you want to die. The same God who authoritarizes who, 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 who through authority corrects us, okay? The same God who has his authority and he corrects us is the same God that loves us so intimately much that he sings songs over us as we sleep. Do you feel the discipline a little bit differently? Do you sense it just a little bit differently. Verse seven, endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as children, as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? You know, none of us wanna sign up for the difficulties of life, those hard times. And so we look at some of these questions that we have, had asked earlier about addiction and about apathy and about mediocrity. And those are not examples of a Christ-like life. The Christ-like life is a life that's passionate about the things that God's passionate about. But we know that we can't ride this spiritual passion all the time when we have our ups and our downs, our highs and our lows, our hills and our valleys. But what's the point? The point is so that we draw closer to God. The point is that we... Make a difference in this world. You know, every single one of us here in this room, it's not just the teenagers, are called to change the world for the cause of Christ. Every single one of us in this room are called to change the world, to be world changers. And world changers does not mean that I travel to the other side of the world because guess what? On the other side of the world, guess where we are? On the other side of the world! So our other side of the world may not be their other side of the world, but where you are called every single day, you're called to change the world for the cause of Christ. How can I do that when I'm living in defiance? How can I do that when I'm not living in holiness? How can I do that when I'm not passionately pursuing Christ? This world, this this culture has so contaminated us. This world and this culture has so contaminated us. These are the things that we're passionate about. Devices. And these are the things that we're passionate about. A microphone so other people hear my voice. And these are the things that we're passionate about. Music and the arts. And these are the things that we're passionate about. The lights and the stages and the, and the media and the buildings and the walls and the carpet and the air conditioner and the, and the cars. And the majority of our time we're focused on things that do not point us to God. Why is that? Because the culture has so influenced us that we're not fighting in that moment against the sin nature. Now, do not misunderstand me. There is absolutely nothing, cancel, nothing wrong with this. And there's nothing wrong with that, and there's nothing wrong with that, and there's nothing wrong with any of the things that I mentioned. Nothing wrong with it, but when that becomes the center of our circle of life, that's when the problem begins. See, I struggle with something that a lot of people don't struggle with. You wouldn't know it about me probably from the outside looking in because I'm a happy-go-lucky kind of guy, but I, I struggle with fun. I have a very hard time having fun. I really do. Things that the majority of people th- find fun and lighthearted, I, I really struggle with. I, I, because the message that I'm preaching today is so serious that I have a hard time differentiating this from the rest of life. And what I mean by that is that if I'm not careful, there should be no fun. If I'm not careful, then everything has to be serious. It has to be right here, right now, and everything's a life or death type of thing. And I have to guard against that. The flip side of that coin is everything's fun and everything's lackadaisical. And everything is about enjoying life. And neither one of those are healthy. My perspective, the, the way that I'm wired, the way I've, I, I would say, not the way I'm wired, that's, not, that's, that's giving blame to God for that. The, the, the way that I have lived my life and I've, Based on the actions that I've lived in my life is where I'm at today, so the foundation that I have, have set as truth has become, has become far on that right side of everything has to be serious, nothing can be fun, because this could be the very last breath that we breathe. So that's too far of the extreme. The other side, though, is an extreme as well. And God just wants us in that beautiful wide middle of life is fun and it's supposed to be enjoyed. But let's take serious about the things that need to be taken serious. And life is a battle. But where's the battle? According to Paul, the battle's not here, even though this is where we spend the majority of our time fighting people with our words, with our actions, with the way that we live our life. But the battle is not here. According to Paul, through the Holy Spirit's inspiration, the battle is in the heavenlies. It's in this spiritual realm. So that's where the battle is. But beyond that, Paul says that the armor that we wear is not armor to fight here. The gear... The stuff that we prepare and wear into battle is for battling here as well. And yet this is where we spend so much of our time. I'm angry at this person about that or I'm frustrated with this situation or, or the government did this or this person said that and we, we, we lay all this mess out here and that's not really the, the truth of where the battle is. The battle's in the heavenlies. So if the battle's in the heavenlies... And the armor, the gear, the warfare, the equipment that God's given me is for battling in the heavenlies. That's where I need to spend the majority of my time battling. Wouldn't you agree? And where I'm not, then I need the Holy Spirit through God's work to clarify and cleanse me and purify me and make me ready for battle. Verse 8. If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for that. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but you know what questions come coming next, right? How many people say, I respected my father for the discipline that I got? Or how many people would say, I don't agree with that statement because I did not or do not respect my father for the discipline that I received? Whether you agree or disagree with that statement, the truth is, it's from our point of view about the way that we were raised, and again, that affects my relationship with God, and it ref- it affects the way that I view Him and understand the truth of Scripture. Because if I had a bad home life, a bad daddy experience, I cannot agree with this statement. Yet once I grasp the reality of who my Father in Heaven is, and that He is Daddy, He is also King. He has all authority, all power, all rule, but he also takes time to be the daddy that sings over me and loves me and embraces me and does the things that good daddies do. And so as I balance that, I can look at this scripture and say, my daddy in heaven, even though my earthly daddy was not perfect and made mistakes, my daddy in heaven is perfect. He does not make mistakes. And his love is beautiful and it encourages and it equips and it empowers and it surrounds me and it encourages me and it fills me with a warmth and a glow and over, a, over, I can't overstate the amount of joy that comes through it because that's who my daddy king is. And so when he disciplines I look back and I say, like, wow, that was hard, but wow, that was good. Wow, that was hard, but wow, that was good. I've told some of you this story before. We're running out of time, so I'm going to make this quick. I was standing in the back, and you see Lonnie back there. I was standing right in front of Lonnie uh, probably about two years ago now, and we did something here on a Sunday morning and had, had the Lord's Supper, and we had the Lord's Supper up front, and we had the little little cups and the little wafers, and all that was done, and the instructions was given, come take it, and then find a quiet place in here, and take the Lord's Supper, and, and just focus and reflect. And I remember standing in that back, right in front of where Alani is, and I had that cup in my hand, and I, and I took, the, took the bread, and I took the cup, and I, and I ate it, and I drank it, and I'm just standing there, I'm reflecting, I'm thinking. And in that moment, I was thinking, it wasn't about this scripture, but it was truly about the essence of this scripture. I was thinking about how I needed God to change my heart and my life, how I wasn't really living in submission, how I had a lot of issues that I needed to deal with, but I couldn't deal with and I really needed God's help. And in that back, in the quietness of that moment, I prayed in my spirit, inside of me, in my mind, I said, Father, I don't want to go through what's next. And again, at that moment, I had no idea what was going to happen. I just knew, based on truth of Scripture, it wasn't going to be pleasant for me. But I asked God, I said, God, I, I know that I need to be cleansed. I, need, I know I need it. So in this moment, I'm giving you permission to do what you need to do to get me where I'm supposed to be. Now, I was also acknowledging, I don't need to ask, God doesn't need my permission. He's got it already. He doesn't need it. But I needed to say that in my mind, in the heart of who I was. I needed to give him permission for my sake. Does that make sense? I needed to do it for me. So in that moment, I said, God, I give you permission. And so I'm holding that little plastic cup in my right hand, just like this. And I'm praying and say, God, I give you permission to do whatever you need to do in my life. And in that moment, I had an auto muscle reflex in my right arm. And I shattered that cup right there. And God, I felt, you know, in my spirit, it's like God saying, okay, it's about to begin. That's what I'm about to do to your heart. And in that moment, I said, God, uh, can I take this back? I don't know. uh, Whoa. I don't know what I was saying. But I thought about it for a moment. I was like, okay, if that's what needs to happen, I don't want it. But if that's what needs to happen, then do it. Brendan Manning wrote this statement. The closer I come to death, the less inclined I am to limit the wisdom and infinity of God. The closer I become to death, the less inclined I am to limit the wisdom and infinity of God. I don't think you have to wait until you're at death's door to grasp the enormity of this statement. I would encourage young people in this room to start wrestling, grasp this statement. In our finite minds, we limit the wisdom of God, the enormity of God, the power of God, the strength of God, the omnipotence of God, the understanding of God. We do. Now, we may not acknowledge that as truth, but the way that we live our lives dictates that. It shows it, it's evidence. We limit the wisdom and the infinity of God. And yet, if I can come to a point in my life where I look up to heaven and I acknowledge before my Father that I have a finite mind and I cannot and will not ever understand the infinite things of God. That's a starting point. But don't start, don't stop trying. Don't stop trying to understand. Don't stop praying for wisdom and understanding. We're given examples all through Scripture of the, of the calling to do that. But at the end of the night, as you lay your head on that pillow, and just before you close your eyes, if you can, in the essence of who you are, cry out to God and say, God, this stinks right now. This stuff that I'm going through in my life, it's hard. And I don't want to go through this. This pain that I'm watching my children go through, it stinks. This problem in my in my personal life, in my in my marriage, in my relationships with with my family, it's hard right now, and it stinks, and it's not right. The addiction that I see my children going through, it's not right. And I set a better example for them than that. And yet they're still doing it. It's not right. But, have your way. I know that your love for me is beautiful. And it's perfect. And it's pure. And I also acknowledge that my mind is finite and I cannot understand the infinite things of God. So give me more faith in this moment to trust you. Give me more perseverance to be able to walk through this one more day. Give me the more strength to be able to have that conversation or just the strength to be able to stand up because I'm physically exhausted dealing with the pressures of this life. But I trust you. And I don't understand And I'm not pretending to understand. And I'm not sugarcoating it. But I trust you. If that's the place that we can get to, God loves that. Authenticity. He loves that prayer. He loves that heartbeat. Here's how I want to end today. Two things. One, I want to read Proverbs chapter 3 to you. Just the first few, chapters, first few verses. Because I think this ties in really with our message today. And then I want to give you something to try at home. Proverbs chapter 3, my son, do not forget my teaching, but keep my commands in your heart. For they will prolong your life many years and bring you prosperity. Let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Then you will win favor and a good name in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. This will bring health to your body and nourishment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. Then your barns will be overfilled to overflowing and your vats, and your vats will brim over with new wine. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline and do not resent his rebuke because the Lord disciplines those he loves as a father the son he delights in. Blessed is the man who finds wisdom, the man who gains understanding, for she is more profitable than silver and yields better returns than gold. She is more precious than rubies. Nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand and in her left hand are riches and honor. Her her ways are pleasant ways and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who embrace her. Those who lay hold of her will be blessed. That's life application. What do you do with this? You start looking at these verses and you live it out. So you may ask the question, where do I begin today? Here's your assignment for the next week. Over the course of the next week, I just want you to focus on one thing. Do more than this if you want to. But simply, every day, at some point throughout the day, find a place to be by yourself for just a couple of minutes. I know it's hard with children in the house, but find a place to be quiet for just a few minutes. And I just want you to sit in a chair, take your palms, put them in your lap, or if you're standing, just to hold them up like this. I just want you to pray these simple words. Abba, I belong to you. Abba, I belong to you. Abba, I belong to you. You can easily do that over two or three minutes. Don't say it so fast that it just becomes words, but think about it every single moment that you're saying it. Call Him who He is, Abba. Cry out that you belong to Him. And I would encourage you to do this if people around you don't think that you're crazy. Say it out loud. There's something unique, and I I don't know scientifically how this works or why this works, but there's something unique about allowing your vocal cords to speak truth And then your eardrums to actually hear them. I don't know how it works. I don't know why it works that way. But there's something unique about proclaiming truth over your life. Speaking truth over your life. And for you to take two or three minutes, if you can't do anything else in a prayer life, simply take two or three minutes and cry out, Even if you don't believe it, even if you don't believe it, try it for one week and see if anything changes inside. Abba, I belong to you. We're going to pray and just cry out to God and ask for more I know this is a hard lesson guys and as we look at Hebrews 12 and 13 over the the next few weeks it's not all about doom and gloom it's not all about discipline and wrath and punishment and things of that nature but again if we have the right perception through the right limbs, we can understand that this is God's gift to us it's his way of making us holy. It's his way of purifying us. It's his way of refining us because he's the great refiner. If you would, close your eyes and bow your head. Thank you for listening. You can find out more about Stork One Church at